Welcome to episode 83 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I speak to Offa Guttenbill and Connie Yofa. Offa is a women's rights activist and filmmaker from Tonga. She has advocated for equality in women's economic and educational empowerment, in their political involvement and representation, in land reform, protection from violence, and has advocated for the ratification of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women for over a decade. She has twice been nominated for the US Secretary of State International Women of Courage Award in 2012 and 2013, recognising her work in advocating for women and children's rights in Tonga. Offer and I discuss the Women and Children's Crisis Centre in Tonga and the work to support women who have experienced violence while simultaneously advocating for policy reform at a national level. Connie is the Port Moresby Director of Family PNG. Family PNG runs case management centres to assist survivors of family and sexual violence to access the services they need. Their target population is women, men or children who are survivors of intimate partner violence, sexual violence, sorcery accusation-related violence or child abuse. Connie and I discuss the extent of gender-based violence in Papua New Guinea, particularly in light of recent news events relating to Debbie Kaur. We've included relevant links in the show notes along with recent articles from the Dev Policy blog on gender-based violence in the Pacific. Once again, we hope to bring you coverage of the new aid strategy this week. However, the interview has been delayed and we hope to bring it to you soon. Enjoy the episode. Offa, thanks for chatting with me. To begin with, can you tell me about the Women and Children's Crisis Centre in Tonga that you run? So the Women and Children Crisis Centre is a non-government organisation established in October 2009 by a group of women and some men who were Uh, passionate about establishing an organisation in Tonga that provided support services to women and children who are victims of all forms of violence, as well as having a a strong lobbying and advocacy arm on policies and laws that we felt needed some uh, look into in terms of review um, amendments or totally getting rid of them. Um, If they were discriminatory towards women and children or if they presented challenges or barriers to women and children's development in Tonga. So that's basically, in a nutshell, what the Women and Children Crisis Centre, we um, provide frontline services in terms of uh, a one-stop service where we have counsellor advocates. Um, We don't have a formal social welfare system in Tonga which means our counsellors also have to provide uh, advocacy services in terms of assisting um, our clients to access uh, justice, access health services, access um, the courts or whatever services uh, they require assistance from because it can get quite uh, challenging for women and children to access these services uh, quite freely and uh, free of, you know, all these gender stereotyping and discriminative practices that have been going on for quite a long time. So, for example, uh, the counsellor in counselling her uh, client, the client may say, well, I did go to the police. I wanted to uh, make a report, but the police officer instead reconciled uh, myself and my husband 
and now I feel uncomfortable going to the police this time round because I know what they'll do. So because of that, the council will then advocate with the client to access police services and ensure that her report is taken. And that's because we don't have the wider social welfare support in Tonga, um, either through government or through any other services. So our councillors end up being council advocates. Um, and then, of course, we have our registered nurse and we have access to the Free Legal Aid Centre and we also work with other lawyers in Tonga who provide uh, pro bono services for our frontliners. Um, on the other side of the Women and Children Crisis Centre is our prevention team. And our prevention team very much focuses on lobbying um, and advocating for change. Um, and by doing that, they depend heavily on the livid experiences of women and children when they come to the centre um, and receive the counselling services support. We also document um, the experiences of violence and we document the experiences of accessing services um, in Tonga and through that we're able to identify uh, the policies and the laws that we need to work on in terms of calling for reform, calling for change or calling for um, uh, getting rid of those laws or policies. So that's our, our key kind of uh, overview. But, uh, you know, when it comes down to the crux of it, we're, we're a, a women's rights organisation. We run on a survivor-centred approach that's very feminist and feminist in the terms uh, that we recognise um, all forms of oppression that our women um, and young girls face in Tonga because of uh, cultural practices that we believe that, um, that challenge or, or cause barriers to their development. And also uh, noting that there are cultural practices that are very positive for our women and children. So we call for keeping and, and sustaining those practices and we call for the um, getting rid of uh, the practices that are destabilising for our women and children. So the centre provides a combination of direct services to women and children and also advocacy and lobbying at a government level. You've been a strong advocate for ratifying CEDAW and Tonga was quite notable for not ratifying the CEDAW convention following opposition from church groups. Can you tell me about that process and why CEDAW wasn't ratified in Tonga initially? I think there's a whole lot of um, issues at play in terms of what resulted in 2015 and... Um, if I can summarise it, I would go back to the government prior to the Atlis Bohiva government coming in, who was the government that actually announced um, that they were going to ratify the convention. Prior to the Bohiva government was the Tu'ivakano government. Um, and that government had done a lot of groundwork in terms of working towards the ratification of CEDAW. And the Prime Minister of the day, Dubarano, as well as the Minister of the day at that time of the Women's Affairs Unit, um, Internal Affairs, Honourable Lord Vaya, were both very strong advocates of CEDAW ratification. Um, now, because we had a change of government, uh, the incoming government, Agnes Bohiva's government, had announced that they were going to spend the first six months of their period um, in government working on uh, tying up loose ends from the previous government and ensuring that there was a, uh, you know, that the things that, that they were working towards would be um, completed before 
carrying out their own plans and strategies for moving forward with their government. So when the Akalisi government actually announced the ratification of CEDAW at the Commission on the Status of Women, it came as a, it became, it immediately overnight became a, a political issue between these two the two different leaderships, so Bohiva and Duitwarano. And a lot of the supporters, let's say the anti-supporters of the Akinesi government saw it as a um, issue that the Bohiva government had brought forward, not knowing the groundwork that the previous government had done in terms of leading it towards ratification. So because of that, a lot of the noise that was kind of that blew up around um, that early annou uh, announcement of CEDAW ratification was focused heavily on the Akilisi government and Akilisi Bohiva government and their, um, their first kind of act in terms of um, becoming the leaders of our, of our government. And that, that kind of political uh, tension that unraveled after that just shot CEDAW on a whole completely different um, discourse. Previous to 2015, and in the kind of 10 years before that, when there was groundwork being done on CEDAW, the most contentious issue at the time was women's rights to land. And of course, the hereditary um, passing of the, the hereditary title um, of the, the royal family, which would, of course, impact that in terms of um, oldest son. That was the most contentious issue of CEDAW. Now, post-2015, we saw a complete different discourse flare up, um, and I believe that it was done purposely to create um, fear-mongering amongst the public and getting a lot of the public to misunderstand CEDAW um, at its core. And so the new kind of fear that was, or the tension that was, um, that arose out of that was uh, abortion and same-sex marriage. And of course, as you would know, Tong is a very uh, Christian society. We have 98% indicating that they are Christians. And so these two issues of abortion and same-sex marriage, you can imagine, just tore throughout the whole country. And it was believed that CEDAW mis uh, misunderstood, um, misconstrued, you know, it was just a total misunderstanding that CEDAW um, was in fact going to come in and disrupt the Tongan fabric of Christianity and introduce abortion laws almost immediately overnight, um, as well as same-sex marriage. I spent a lot of my time alongside with the Women and Children Crisis Centre and other advocates um, in our non-government, in our civil society sector, really spending a lot of our times just unpacking that the misunderstanding of and the misconceptions of CEDAW. So it was a lot of time spending of re-educating the public um, using radio, television, um, going on social media, going into a lot of political debate spaces on social media and just really unpacking that uh, misconception. However, um, it was, you know, it, the, the time and effort and the energy put into that um, took away from the discussions that should have been held around CEDAW in terms of the land issue, which is really 
why um, I've been a, a, a supporter of CEDAW because I still believe to this day that the biggest discriminative law in Tonga is women's rights to meet. And that is because women, um, as we speak, cannot, um, because of the law, register a town or bush allotment purely on the basis that she is born a female. Um, that has always been my issue with um, with, with CEDAW in terms of a convention that calls for governments to remove any form of discrimination through policies, through law that discriminate, that directly discriminates against women. Um, now we're having to spend a lot of time on re-educating the public on this issue, the misconception around same-sex marriage, for example, and talking to people and really just unpacking CEDAW and saying, look, CEDAW is a convention on the removal of any form of discrimination in the laws against women. So if the laws in Tonga, the marriage laws, for example, if the marriage laws in Tonga um, stated or provided for men, Tongan men are allowed to marry men. However, Tongan women are not allowed to marry women. That is the discriminative part, and that's what CEDAW calls for the removal. Now, if the Marriage Act is and a, a law of equality and that it does not discriminate against women and men and the provisions that it provides, then CEDAW is not needed in that particular law. So as the marriage law stands in Tonga, both men and women have the same provisions. They can marry who they want as long as they're eligible of the age that the Marriage Act says and are not marrying the proximity of relatives that the Marriage Act provides um, that lists in, in, its, in its law. So because of that, um, a lot of people assume that and misunderstood CEDAW as the law that was going to force the government of Tonga to introduce same-sex marriage um, into its legislation. So as you can see, I'm just trying to kind of summarise it for you. It's been a kind of a roller coaster over the last you know, um, how many number of years post 2015 of us having to go around and talk to communities and then unpack CEDAW and really go through it, you know, step by step and getting people to understand it, getting people to understand the reporting processes, getting people to understand um, the CEDAW committee and that there is not a CEDAW organisation per se with funding that's going to... Um, pour into our country once we ratify it. So these are all the misconceptions. And I feel as a women's rights activist on the ground that a lot of my energy and energy of others is poured into that, into the re-education of. And I just feel that government needs to step up and do a lot of this re-education. They need to take ownership of basically the mess that government had made uh, on CEDAW because I do believe that there could have been steps in place um, that could have you know, uh, resulted in better discussions, better talanoa amongst all the key stakeholders and not so much push it into the um, CSO space all the time for us to make the noise and for us to do the re-education and all of that. I do believe that government needs to take ownership of this issue. And also through the UPR reports, for example, the Universal Periodic Review reports that the government has reported to, they've, they've submitted two reports to, the, to Geneva, uh, reports to Geneva, and in all the reports, 
all these, all the three governments who have reported under the UPR, three different governments, have accepted. They have accepted all the recommendations on the government of Tonga to uh, ratify CEDAW. But of course, any other recommendations from other countries around other more contentious issues, such as the the woman's rights to land or the hereditary titles, you know. So you know, you do you can have reservations, which has always been my understanding of CEDAW, and why I've always been an advocate of it, and you know, pushing and and speaking up on these issues. But yeah, that's all I can say. The takeaway I get from what you've said there is that the government of Tonga hasn't been good enough or they haven't played the role that they needed to in regards to CEDAW. Do you think the underrepresentation of women in Tonga's parliament contributed to this and that if there were more female MPs, there may have been more support for CEDAW? Um, Yes and no. I say yes because I do believe, um, without a doubt, that there needs to be more women in parliament, full stop. Since 1951, we've been given the right to vote and to stand as candidates. And up until our last general elections, we've only ever had, we've now got six women who've been elected into to parliament um, through the voters. And that's aside from the women who have been appointed um, into parliament. And so I do think that there is a dire straits need in terms of increasing the number of women in our parliament because we can bring to the table different aspects of decision-making as well as the way we view things um, in terms of how it impacts the family economically, politically, socially, culturally. That's without a doubt. But I also do know that because Tonga is such a strong patriarchal society, that in fact a lot of our women do defend um, patriarchal structures. And so having more women in parliament is not necessarily the answer. Yeah, it's not a panacea to um, improving policy or lawmaking in Parliament. What I do believe needs to be done is that all members of Parliament need to undergo gender training. Um, They need to know, they need to undergo gender equality, gender equity, and understand those key concepts and the challenges that come with gender stereotyping and gender insensitive insensitive, um, decision-making processes. I think until that's done, we can then see um, better policy-making and better law-making in Parliament. I I guess if we use the most recent example of when the Minister of Education in the previous Parliament mentioned that he, because he had made a directive to stop girls from playing rugby in, in the government high schools, and in Parliament he talked about the reasons why and brought up cultural reasons as his justification. Now, I think, and, and that was made despite the fact that Tonga has a national gender policy. So the gender training is critical because we cannot have members of Parliament going in and continuing to make policies or laws that discriminate against women and girls so blatantly, knowing very well that there is a national policy on gender um, and development in Tonga. So yes, I do believe that needs to be women in parliament, but I also believe at the same time that all men and women in parliament need to undergo gender training. So we've talked about how the existing legislation disadvantages women and girls in terms of being able to own land, to access an abortion, same-sex marriage. What about the laws relating to gender-based violence and the legal support systems and structures that exist for women who have experienced violence? We've had a recent um, 
milestone achievement in Ngai Tonga in terms of the Family Protection Act 2013, which was implemented in 2014. Uh, the Family Protection Act is, is a piece of legislation that has provisions in place for protecting uh, all members of the family from all forms of violence. Now we know from statistics in Tonga, as is globally, that the majority of victims and survivors of, of family violence are women and young girls. Now in Tonga, um, to give you a kind of overview of that, in the, during the lockdown, uh, 15 days we were in complete lockdown in Tonga, we had 20 new cases. Now that may not uh, sound a lot to the, the wider um, global audience, but in Tonga with, with the average um, number of cases that the crisis centre receives per month, which sits, sits between 20 to 23 new cases, um, that's a huge um, increase for us in terms of, of numbers. That's a 54% increase, including our repeat counselling sessions. We had a total of 106 repeat counselling sessions over that 15-day period, in addition to the 20 new cases. And that's a 54% increase to the norm. Tonga is also um, part of the Pacific in that we've got some of the highest numbers of uh, gender-based violence. Tonga is at uh, 40 plus percent. And I, we haven't had a, a, another um, a comparative research done because we've hit the 10-year mark already and I believe that it will increase. And so, in terms of the gender-based violence statistics in Tonga um, and the services, we have the Crisis Centre, which is a non-government organisation providing those uh, frontline services. We have a free legal aid centre that provides um, free legal advice to women and uh, children survivors of violence, as well as any other family members. We also have, of course, our police, we have the courts, and then we've got the hospital, which are the key main stakeholders dealing with um, gender-based violence. And we also have other NGOs providing counselling in this area. We've got the Ma'afafine, and we also have the TNCWC who provide counselling services as well. And the Talitha Project, who focuses on young women, particularly single mothers. So we've got services available, very heavily based in the urban area, in the Mukwalofa urban area. The WCCC has just opened up two branches in two of their outer islands in Ewa and Heart Bay and is, is looking at opening up another branch in Lavao. And while we have the services available at the, in the CSO space, we still have a long way to go in terms of government um, committing and showing political will in this area. We still don't have services, support services for women fleeing violence, which then results and so we've got the safe house for example at the crisis center uh survivors can stay there for up to three weeks we've had survivors stay up to a year only because there's no other support system and there's no other option for the survivor um, to access so in terms of that it does unfortunately result in more than 70 percent of women living in violent situations who access services, whether it's our services or any other service, returning to 
extremely violent environment that she fled from. Um, and that's really sad for me to say, but that's a reality, only because there's no other support services. There's no kind of benefit from the government for her to access, to re-establish herself, to be able to find an accommodation or any uh, pathway to help her in terms of finding employment. So we've got a long, long way to go, but I believe that with a lot of strategic partnerships and discussions that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel but we really need to work closely in terms of the CSO sector providing services and gender-based violence with government to provide this service. So speaking generally to finish then do you think that the gender-based violence in Tonga is getting better or worse? I have seen that the numbers are on the increase and I can't say that it's because there's more violence. What I can say that I believe that more women and children are more confident in speaking up and in reporting. But I also do believe that, you know, with with the awareness that's going out, that's being raised amongst um, different stakeholders. So we've got, for example, the Tonga Disability um, Association, who are now also talking about gender-based violence amongst their constituencies and talking about the services that they can access. But also, more importantly, raising concerns around the gaps in services, you know, both for civil society sector as well as government. And we can only improve if we hear the lived experiences from these different constituencies. Now, I've never believed, I've never been a component of um, uh, a supporter of the process where you just come together and you think, what should we do? Let's tackle this issue. Let's um, create these policies and let's go about it this way. I've always believed that the only way civil society and government should work is through the lived experiences of its citizens. Through their voices, we learn about where the gaps are. It's there that we should be focusing and investing our time in terms of creating better uh, policies, closing the gaps. Um, changing attitudes and behaviours because we can have all the policies and laws in place but if we don't work towards changing attitudes and behaviours that are stereotypical, that are discriminative then we're just going to continue um, the cycle. Thanks Offer for your insights and we'll include a link in the show notes where our listeners can find some more information about the centre and the work that you're doing. Thanks for your time. That was Offa Guttenbeel from the Tonga Women and Children's Crisis Centre. Next, I speak to Connie Yofa from Family PNG. Connie, thanks for speaking with me. Can you start by telling me about Family PNG and what it does? Family PNG is a local NGO that started in 2014 after an uh, evaluation done by MSF. MSF at the time was doing um, was operating family support centre in one of the provinces in Papua New Guinea, that's in Leh. So during that time, one of the, the evaluation from the evaluation, they found out that most of the survivors whom we refer to as service providers, they came back again. They uh, couldn't go there because uh, they don't know where to go to. And some, even when they went to that place, they were told that it's a family problem, so you had to go back. So because of all this, um, uh, the feedbacks that we get from the clients, that's when family pay, uh, one of the recommendations and for an organization to do case management. That's when Family PNG came about. So basically, Family PNG provides um, 
case management to the survivors of feminine uh, sexual violence, specifically um, intimate partner violence, child abuse, all forms of child abuse, sexual abuse, and social related violence. Can you give me an idea of a typical client that would come to Family PNG and the sorts of services that you would provide them? Mostly, most of the survivors that access this uh, case management are survivors of intimate partner violence. And some we, we also receive like survivors of sexual abuse, especially rape cases. So I'll give an example of a child abuse, um, a sexual abuse case of a child. So if a child comes to FC is a survivor of a rape case and if she came uh, come to the family PNG testing test, we look at the testing test, the priority, we look at the medical part of it because if they have been um, been raped, they have to take in some medications like uh, prophylaxis, PEP, uh, post-exposure prophylaxis to prevent them from HIV AIDS. So those, it's within 72 hours. So those are some of the things that we have to consider when it comes to timing. And also we look at the safety of the child, if it is safe for them to go back home uh, or if it is not safe. And we also, because uh, we also have this lookout in Bikini Act where we have to inform the uh, child protection office. That's the welfare office. So we have to uh, let them know about uh, the nature of the case. And if they need medical assistance, we refer them to our hospital. And after they're medically okay, that's when we refer them to um, police station. If they want to pursue their case, we refer them to police station and we follow up from there. It sounds like incredibly intense work for you. What about your own story? How long have you been in Port Moresby and how long have you been the director of Port Moresby operations for Family PNG? Okay, I've started working with Family PNG since October 2014 as a child protection officer. And after two years, six months, I started uh, work as a training coordinator in June last, not June, January, I started working as a, a casework manager for Home Office, Home Project, that's a basic uh, case management. And July, I just worked for six months and July I was, um, I started working as a, a director. So next month is my, it will be my first uh, one year work as a director for Family PNG and Pompis. Have you been based in Port Moresby throughout your life or is your family somewhere else in Papua New Guinea? I, when I transferred to Port Moresby, I also brought in my kids with me. They are with me. Um, actually, my family is from Eastern Islands, so my family is at home and I'm with my kids and my husband in Port Moresby. So I understand that Family PNG receives considerable support from the private sector. How does that work? Yes, uh, for this PNG um, program, we have like different organizations taking lead in some of the activities. So OSM is the one that deals with the subscription form. So they are the one um, reaching out to business houses and advocating. And when it comes, when they, are, um, when they agree to subscribe, that's when BCFW goes in and they take them through the policy and all these things. And that's when they subscribe services. Um, so it's an annual thing, like um, they subscribe um, 100,000 yearly. This money is then uh, like we are supporting the safe house, Belize safe house. So the funding from the uh, subscriptions goes to the, the operations of the safe house. So this has obviously been a big couple of weeks for gender-based violence in Papua New Guinea with the video of Debbie Kaur being abused circulating on social media in Papua New Guinea and also internationally. Why do you think this particular incident of violence has caught the attention of the public? 
I've also uh, seen the video that was uh, circulated on the uh, media. I think the thing that really caught the attention of the public is uh, the video itself. Uh, so that was the thing that caught the attention because from the video, like you can see that he's like heading down, um, heading Debbie and also using the eye to assault. Okay, so that could be one of the things. And also with the, the role that she's in, like he's a, a rep, PNG rep. So that could be one of the things that got the public attention and also, you know, different organizations talking about this. The response on social media has been mixed though, hasn't it? Some people have been critical of Debbie and supportive of the perpetrator. What do you think that says about attitudes towards gender-based violence in Papua New Guinea? I think, um, like personally, I would say that most of the people, like, they still don't really, you know, differentiate, like, if certain issues, like, uh, assault is an assault, it's a criminal offence. So they try to justify the actions, why justify their reasons for why messing the person up and all these things. So that is the reason why, you know, people were so vocal on the uh, media and all these things. They were blaming David as he was the one who was, you know, engaged in this whole TikTok or something. They, yes, so they used that as a justification and trying to justify why the husband be the best terror, but they didn't really understand that it is an assault. It, it was not supposed to be that way. So you're saying people try to justify assault? Yes. So when an incident happened, like especially when there's an abuse, people think that, you know, that person deserved it because of this, what is, what, you know, because of what they have done and all these things. So. In your experience, is violence against women in Papua New Guinea improving or is it getting worse? Uh, personally, from my point of view, with the social media thing going on and people, you know, started speaking out in the social media and all these things, you know, previously it was not reported that much. People take it as it's just like some women take it like this, this as subset, like they blame themselves. Sometimes they think that it's normal, it's a family issue. So they didn't really speak about, I mean, speak out on these issues. But now that, you know, social media is coming up and, you know, uh, people are really vocal about these things, organizations going on doing awareness and all these things. So people are speaking out now. So we are starting to see a lot of people coming out and talking about these things. So what resources or services do you think are needed so that there is more support in Papua New Guinea for victims of gender-based violence? With the government, I think we have, the government has played their part, like setting up, uh, have responsible organisations dealing with these things, like police, welfare, courthouses and everything. But it's just that, you know, people need to be sensitised on this, on the new laws that have been passed in the parliament and also about this FSBT. So when not only the public, but also the service providers themselves as well, they need to be sensitized in order to provide the services to the survivors. Because if they're also in that position to provide services and they are not sensitized, still they will not allow the client to access those services that's available. So once they are in the, when they are sensitized on these things and they are aware of the laws, um, laws that's currently been passed in the parliament, then I think they will be in a better position to help the survivors. And that's the Family Protection Act that you're referring to? Okay, we have this Family Protection Act and also look out in Pekinini. What impact do you think law reform has, though? We do have this law, like, it's already been passed, and but the thing is some of the service providers, they are not really trained on this, but they are not really aware of these laws. Like, some of the magistrates that we go to when it comes to IPOs, internal protection orders for the survivors, they are still need to be sent a train on those things. So when it comes to implementing the laws that we passed in the parliament, it's quite a challenge 
because the implementers are not really fully aware of these things. So in addition to direct support services, Family PNG also conducts outreach and promotes awareness of gender-based violence. What impact do you think that outreach has? With lay, with, with uh, current outreach and awareness uh, program going on, they're starting, the people are starting to come to the, uh, the office to seek services. Now, so there's an increase in the number of people accessing the services. So that shows that people now start to realize that it is wrong when it comes to uh, family violence and all this. So they're starting to speak out and then people are referring Outside, it's like community leaders are referring cases to the office, and now we have this high number of increased number of clients accessing the office. And what challenges has COVID 19 created for the outreach and also for your direct services? Uh, for the case management, when this uh, when we had this positive case and it was announced, uh, the government passed this SOE, and the lockdown period, we didn't receive a lot of uh, clients, but we, we do have clients who were calling us through the um, over the phone or sending emails. So clients were, uh, caseworkers were able to assist them through, but there was a decrease in the number of clients that access the service. But we still receive clients, and, and also we, in home office, we are providing uh, safe house as well. So during those periods, we were open. So when the clients needed safe accommodation, they were able to access those services that we were providing. But it's like there was a, big, a decrease in the number of clients accessing the service. And for the outreach program during that time, they were more like uh, printing out IC materials, giving it to the organizations who wanted to do awareness and going out with organizations like FSB police. They were more into community awareness, so they were engaged in those activities as well. And, but they didn't like go out in a program. They didn't have this program to go out into other communities to do the outreach. Thanks, Connie, for your time. And we'll include a link in the show notes where our listeners can learn more about Family PNG and your work. That was episode 83 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre with Offa Guttenbill from the Tonga Women and Children's Crisis Centre and Connie Yofa from Family PNG. As always, we've included links in the show notes where you can learn more about both organisations. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.